Hello, my name is Father Edward Looney, and you're listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. When we think of the Blessed Mother, sometimes we think of her miraculous intercession, how prayers addressed to her have obtained miracles in the lives of many people. Uh, today, I'm speaking with Adam Bly, who is a layman, who is an expert in miracles and uh, also has done a lot of extensive work in demonology and exorcisms uh, and studying that and seeing the miracles that uh, happen in that way as well. And so he recently published a book called The Catholic Guide to Miracles. And I think this is going to be a lovely conversation because so many people, I think, always have questions about miracles. And now here we have this particular guide to help us understand the miraculous that God does in our lives. So welcome to How They Love Mary, Adam Bly. Hi, Father. Thanks so much. Yeah, can you just maybe share, you know, you write this book about the Catholic Guide to Miracles. Obviously, that means you had an interest in miracles. Uh, where where did that interest come from, and, and why did you go about writing this book? Well, um, this has been an evolving process over like the last 15 years, where God seems to have pulled me into some of the more extraordinary uh, kind of corners of the church and ministry and being exposed in the world of exorcism, uh, you know, on a national and now international level, um, I had seen a number of unusual things that we generally don't encounter in regular life. And those were, in a sense, proofs of the reality of God and the spiritual world and, and the supernatural and preternatural. And so I had written about that after you know, after about 12 or 13 years in that world. And I thought uh, that because along the way I had also encountered miracles from God in a number of ways, I thought it would be good to also explore those um, for two reasons. The primary one is conversion, because I think the activity of the devil and the miraculous both serve to draw people to God because they're proofs of the spiritual world. Um, and then also to highlight the positive side of, of that coin. So, you know, I, I had looked at some of the activities of the enemy, and it's more important and ultimately more edifying to look at the activities of God. So, yeah, it, it kind of evolved over time, um, and it just seemed like that's, honestly, that's what God wanted next, and so I set about working on it. I think it was Pope Benedict the Fifteenth many years ago, you know, over a century ago, he kind of gave us a definition of a miracle, something that is instantaneous, long-lasting, and defies reason. Would that be the best way to de define a miracle, or do you have a better definition of what a miracle is? Well, I, I went with Thomas Aquinas, which is, you know, usually a safe bet uh, within exploring philosophy and theology in the Church, and Thomas had defined a miracle in kind of three different layers. So he had certainly agreed uh, that a miracle is something only God can do, so the devil can't do miracles, uh, but he had defined it in three ways. And the first is, when God does something that nature can never do, and that would be like the sun moving in the sky at Fatima, that's something that just doesn't occur in nature. 
And then when God does something that nature does, but in a different order. So, you know, ultimately our bodies will die, uh, but being raised from the dead is, is out of order. So normally life precedes death, and when the reverse happens, that's something only God can do. And then the third one uh, would be when God does something nature does, but much faster. So this would touch on that idea of instantaneous. So, you know, we might have a fever or be sick and naturally recover over a week or 10 days. But sometimes through prayer, we have an instantaneous recovery. And so that's something done faster than nature normally does it. Um, yeah, so there are certainly parallels. I think Thomas was just trying to parse it um, into more finer um, kind of categories. When we think of miracles, I think we always just are drawn to the idea of a healing. And we know this in the stories of canonizations and beatification processes that people who are canonized, that people have prayed, asking their prayers, and they've experienced some sort of miracle. Uh, I go to the story of, of Fulton Sheen, not yet canonized or beatified, that's being delayed right now, but there was this boy who didn't breathe for 30 minutes or something like that, but they kept praying, asking Fulton Sheen's intercession, and the boy comes to life. And then this boy is still living today, and so we regard that as a miracle. Or, you know, some of the stories of miraculous healings from cancer or Parkinson's or whatever the case might be. And But there are other types of miracles, too. It's not just healings. What are some of the other miracles that we can encounter? Sure. So, yes, we see healings talked about probably the most because they're, they're the type of miracle that can be objectively validated pretty easily by doctors, and that's why the Church relies on that type of miracle for beatifications and canonizations. But there are, you know, a number of others. Uh, some are the Marian apparitions that have appeared many times down through history, um, some of which are approved, and uh, those apparitions, you know, take, take different forms. Um, some are there to warn us in terms of a point in history, some draw us to conversion, some are associated with healings, uh, some bring other, other types of graces into the world. So those apparitions are Marian. There's also been times uh, St. Michael has appeared to people as, as an image um, for various reasons. Then there's uh, miracles where uh, pandemics or plagues have ended, again, often associated with St. Michael. Then there's uh, kind of the sensationalized, at least in our media, uh, idea of the stigmata, which is when regular people experience some of the pains and physical wounds of the passion of Jesus. Uh, you know, they're not self-inflicted, and they have a number of supernatural characteristics. There's also been levitations that have happened with certain saints down through history that have been well-documented and observed. So there's, you know, there's a number of them. Um, and, and a number of types. What do you make of, uh, one of the things you mentioned in your book is is about the incorruptibles, that there are these individuals, you know, they're dug up for the process of canonization, they open the tomb, and it's as if they never died, no decay has touched their body. What do we make of that, for example? Well, that's an idea that's often 
uh, a little bit misunderstood because the stories are often passed on without the details. So um, it's almost never the case that they are totally incorrupt as if, you know, they were just asleep and it never, never died. That, that actually doesn't seem to be the case. What the Church has observed, and the original definition of being incorrupt, is that the body was more pliable and less decayed than would be expected for the period of time. Now, there are some very ancient cases where the the claim that's passed down is that the person did look totally incorrupt. Unfortunately, we we don't have as much modern kind of uh, corroboration of, of those claims, to be a little careful. What we have seen in, in basically in the more recent recorded history is that certain people, when the body is exhumed, are much much less corrupt than would be expected. And in some cases, it's you know even in the hundreds of years, so that's pretty remarkable. Um, and then the the body usually at some point uh, moves on to some level of corruption. In the case of Charbel. It kind of dramatically went from from fairly incorrupt to uh, bones and dust very quickly after his canonization, as if God had provided that as a sign. And in fact, in the early church, incorruptibility was used as a sign indicating sainthood, but it is no longer used uh, because as science has progressed, we know more about the conditions that can preserve a body. Um, We know more about embalming, and so... um, it's basically an interesting supporting detail, but it's not used as evidence anymore. There's a curious miracle that happens a few times each year in Italy, and it's the liquefaction of the blood of St. Januarius. What do you know about it? How can we explain that type of a miracle? It seems a bit bizarre when you know someone not in religion looks at it. They're like, "What? What are they making a big deal about this person's blood?" Mm-hmm. I don't know a ton of detail about that case. So, um, my understanding is is that on his feast day each year, um, what is normally obviously completely dried and hardened blood that's kind of in a glass container looks a little bit like a monstrance but it's it's with you know a different different item uh that on his feast day it seems to liquefy such that when they turn it it flows uh you know and this is backlit so you can see the movement of the fluid and i think most people are aware that blood dries quite quickly when it leaves the body and in this case it's it's quite old and so blood never um, spontaneously reliquifies. Uh, it clots and dries quite quickly. And so this is uh, a miracle that's seen as an encouragement to the people uh, about, you know, just the, that saint, their holiness. Uh, and that is essentially a first-class relic. Uh, if we understand a first-class relic is a part of a saint's body, Second class is something that they own. Third class is something that's been touched to the body of the saint. So that's a first-class relic, of which the Church has many, many thousands. Uh, They're usually bones or hair. Um, It's quite rare that it would be blood, because, again, the blood dries and hardens um, and is often long gone by the time they exhume a body to take relics from it. So uh, it's also seen locally as kind of a local tradition uh, about how pleased the saint is with the church and, and 
with the city that, that the blood resides in. And so that's kind of a pious local tradition of interpreting whether the blood liquefies, because it doesn't always liquefy. I believe it's twice a year they check. Uh, sometimes it's partial, sometimes it seems to be complete, and so people infer things from that. Yeah, it's just one of those things that's always fascinated me, like just curious, I guess, about it. We are talking about miracles and all the different types of miracles, and so we've mentioned incorruptibles, and you mentioned levitation and stigmata. We know about healings. And I know in Lourdes, there is a medical bureau that investigates the healings that people claim, and then they make a statement whether they think this is truly a miracle from Lourdes. So when we look at miracles in general, who determines that it's a miracle? Do you submit it to the local church if you uh, believe that there's been a miracle? What, what, what's that look like, I guess? Sure. So... Um the authority, as with many things in the church, resides with the local bishop. And so if somebody thinks a miracle has occurred, that should be submitted to the chancery or the pastoral center, basically the, the central office of the diocese in which, uh, or the diocese that covers the area where that purported miracle happened, and then the bishop may or may not investigate that. Um, you know, in the case of lords, they investigate them because the local bishop, and, and historically people are interested in valid miracles at Lourdes, which are usually healings. Um, so sometimes somebody may report a miracle, but there's no particular reason to spend the time and money to investigate it. Uh, if the bishop chose to, they would look into it. And generally, when it comes to things like healings, the Church relies on outside medical experts, because the Church wants to be reasonable and is skeptical of these things. And so there's a number of criteria with purported healings, and generally they are that the healing be instantaneous, that it be complete, that it be lasting, and that there's no other explanation uh, from medical science for it. So if somebody were to switch their cancer meds and then their cancer went into remission, that would be a reasonable explanation that the new medication is working, and you wouldn't then be able to substantiate that as a miracle. And that's not to say that God didn't do a miracle there, but basically there's a reasonable doubt, and so the Church would not make a statement on that. And uh, at Lourdes, of course, they're doing that in a very organized way and have uh, for quite a long time. Lourdes started in 1858. There's been a medical bureau there since shortly after that time in continuous existence with doctors who do the objective evaluation of claims of healings at Lourdes. I think when we are talking about these miracles, it's God's action in human history, God revealing himself. What do you think the purpose of a miracle is? Is that the purpose to show that God is powerful and to lead people to faith? Well, I think miracles are there for the same reason they were there in the Old and the New Testament, and that's for conversion. So, you know, when Jesus did miracles, he referred to them as signs that, that most of the people needed in order to uh, see and, and believe that God was present amongst them. Uh, so they're provided, certainly for the personal benefit of the person that receives the miracle. And there may be many secret miracles that we never hear about, just a person's conversion, uh, the encouragement that they, they feel, the presence of God that they experience. 
But the miracles that we hear about that are promoted are certainly there for conversion. Sometimes they're there for catechesis, to teach the world about some of the realities of God. Uh, but ultimately, they're there to draw all of us towards God, um, and kind of they're a spiritual aid that's provided to the world. That, sure, yeah. That you know, I've I've often thought about the unbeliever, for example. You know, so they hear the stories of these miracles that have happened, the miracles of the saints, the healings, all of these things. And I always wonder, well, what does the unbeliever make of this? And how, how can not hearing these stories lead you to some sort of belief to say, wow, that really does defy explanation. Maybe there is something about faith and religion. So that's something that's always kind of boggled my mind, how the unbeliever can, can hear these things and still dismiss faith in God. Mm-hmm. And, you know... Uh... I think, especially in the modern world, you know, quote-unquote modern world, I think every generation thinks they live in the modern world, but um, I think we find it easier to dismiss uh, such claims, especially in the Internet age where things can be faked so easily. Um, People, you know, relying on things as being facts and objective evidence, I think, is greatly weakened, and also the postmodern kind of philosophical approach uh, that's very popular among younger people today. So, you know, if truth is relative, it's, well, you think you experienced a miracle, but I don't see it that way. And then I think many people just simply ignore the stories of the miracles. They're, um, they're not talked about as much as perhaps they should be or could be. Um, and I think some people just simply dismisses it dismiss it out of hand and say, well, they made that up. Um, Because, as you say, Father, if you look into it and and realize, like in the Eucharistic miracles, that, you know, professors of cardiac medicine that didn't know what they were looking at were just given a sample and and concluded that it was cardiac tissue, and yet uh, there was solid confidence that that had been a host, you know, that had not been swapped or faked or anything else, and if you see that a, a piece of unleavened bread has become cardiac tissue and blood, um, the implications of that are huge. And so I think the human mind sometimes rejects it just because we don't want to deal with the consequences of that. Um, so I think it's, it needs to be a grace, just like when we read the Bible or things about Jesus, Sometimes it falls on on deaf ears, and sometimes if we have the grace from God to hear that story kind of in a living sense, um, then it it becomes a transformative event to hear that story. So that's the extra kind of component I would encourage people to just ask God for the grace to understand and reflect on the miracles uh, in the way they're intended by God might be the additional layer that would help. This is a podcast called How They Love Mary. So I often speak with guests about Mary and the Marian dimension of whatever it is they're working on. And so what are the stories of of Mary's miraculous intervention? Any that immediately come to mind beside the apparitions? Well, um, I mean, the apparitions are the main ones that we hear about. 
but also there's been you know tremendous assistance to to many people through the rosary uh, i've personally just to share something that isn't an apparition it's a little personal from my work um in exorcism i'm a layman i'm not an exorcist but i've been training priest in exorcism for about 15 years so I, I'm involved in these cases every week, you know, continuously. And there was a really difficult case where I was praying the rosary quite a bit for that case as the person would be struggling um, and would be taken over and, you know, they're in another city, so you're just getting a text from them. And there was a day that I was praying the rosary fervently um, for about 30 or 40 minutes uh, in the hopes of, this person kind of coming back to their senses and, and not ended up, you know, seriously hurt because they were in a dangerous situation in, in another city. So I was just walking here um, and praying, taking a break at lunch. And after about 35, 40 minutes, I hadn't texted or, you know, said anything to this person because they were not in their right mind. Uh, those evil spirits had taken over their body. And so I was just praying, hadn't communicated anything about it. And after about 35 minutes, I got a text, uh, not from the person, but from the evil spirits in them saying, fine, we'll leave her alone. It's not because of that woman that you're praying to, we're choosing to leave her be. And then she came back to her senses. Now, of course, they were leaving her alone for the moment because I've been asking Mary's intercession through the rosary. And I've seen the rosary have powerful effects in terms of deliverance uh, many, many times. And kind of the follow-up to that, uh, in most exorcism cases, the last spirit to go when the person is completely freed, almost always Jesus sends his mother Mary to end the case. And so the person will see Mary physically enter the room. Nobody else will. She will usually simply say it's over, and that's the moment that the case ends. And even people that aren't Christian and really don't know anything about Mary will say this beautiful woman came in the room and told me it's over. Who was she? Who, who was that woman? So even people that don't know who she is or have any devotion to her will experience Mary coming to end the case. And so we see a lot of basically miraculous activity with Mary around deliverance work. Um, but it's not something that's, you know, promoted to the public very much. Wow, that is incredible. Uh, you know, just your personal witness, your personal story and relationship to the Blessed Mother in that sense and seeing that is miraculous. And and um, and I've often heard that um, in regard to exorcisms and such, that Mary's intercession is very powerful. And that all goes back to that her heel will crush the head of the serpent. And, and so that's really what she does. And you know, I've heard stories, too, of people at the end of their life that Mary, sometimes they see Mary come to them. Like Father Patrick Payton, uh, he said the name of Mary, had it on his lips as he was dying. And so I can't help but imagine that as a person who was so dedicated to the rosary and to the Blessed Mother that he experienced that miracle, in a sense, of that vision of Mary as he transitioned from this life to the next. So... Yeah, her mm -hmm. intercession has been powerful. People call upon her. We can even think of how uh, wars have been averted by the power of Mary's prayers and how we celebrate that with the Feast of Our Lady of the Rosary, for example. So 
Well, how fascinating to talk about miracles. I think this is something that people really love to talk about. They love to hear miraculous stories. And as we mentioned earlier, I really think it bolsters faith and confidence in God. So I'd like to thank you so much for sharing with us today about miracles and also for writing this book, The Catholic Guide to Miracles, which is available from Sophia Institute Press. So thanks so much for being with me today, Adam. Oh, thank you, Father. God bless you, and God bless your listeners.